the simple moments of everyday life. A lot can be going on that we don't ever notice. But if we'll take the time, the everyday becomes extraordinary as we lean in and look closer. Well, hello, friends. If I haven't met you before, my name is Brian. I'm the creative pastor here at Christ the King, and I am excited to be with you this weekend. I'm excited to open up the Word of God, and I think I know what some of you are probably thinking right now. It's, does Brian know that he has a backpack on right now? The answer is yes. And then maybe the second question that you're asking is, do I get to know why Brian is wearing a backpack right now? The answer to that right now is no, we will get to it. But I wanted to start a little bit different today. I wanted to start by sharing a moment from my week. I was working a little bit late one day and um, my wife texted me and let me know that our oldest daughter had just asked, this is the first time this has ever happened, asked if she could pray for her dad. And I don't think you get that. The proper response to that is, ah, oh. so I'll give you one more shot. So my daughter told my wife, she texted me, said, hey, guess what? Brooklyn wants to pray for you. Okay, perfect, well done, well done. See, we can learn, we can learn. And within 20 seconds, I got another text that actually showed me what the prayer was when Brooklyn, when Brooklyn actually prayed it. And this was the prayer in its entirety. She said, dear Jesus, can you please let my dad come home? Amen. And that was it. So I'm just telling you, I just booked it from work. I was like, it's done. I'm going home. Because how many times in your life do you get an opportunity to answer such a sweet and perfect prayer? And I actually brought a picture of my girls because sometimes when I don't, I get angry emails and they're like, where were the girls? And so that's Brooklyn in between us. She's two and a half. And then this little munchkin here on uh, your right is Addison. She's going to be turning one here this week. And she is just a ball of joy. And she scratched up my face this week, uh, but I don't hold it against you, Addie, if you're listening, that's okay. I just gotta tell you, being a dad is one of the great joys of my life. It's so beautiful, it's so wonderful, but if we're really honest, it is anything but easy. Any parents in here can relate to that. It is good, but it is anything but easy. Life is not as perfect as the pictures would depict. Our sweet girl, Brooklyn, is two and a half years old and she is the joy of my life, but I've also been doing a little bit of reading because I've become increasingly convinced that two-year-olds were custom designed by God to frustrate parents in ways that they didn't even know that they could be frustrated. I feel like it's kind of like the opening line of the tale of two cities. It's the best of times. They're so cute. They're so loving in moments, but it's also the worst of times. You're just like, what in the world has gotten into you? Where did my sweet little girl go? But the more that I read, the more that I'm realizing that a lot of the challenges that we face when we're talking about two-year-olds is coming out of this place where developmentally a lot of the work that they're doing is trying to define boundaries. They're trying to figure out where the line is. So they're trying to understand what they can get away with and what they can't. They're trying to understand what's the consequences to their actions. And so, uh, for example, I could say, sweet, sweet girl, please do not continue to drop your fork on the floor. She says, it's slipping. It's like, no, it is not slipping. That's the seventh time and I've seen you every single time, but I'm calm and I say, please, don't do it. And then here's her response to me. She will look me straight in the eyes. She will hold out the fork and oh so gently open her fingers so that it falls to the floor as if to say, what are you going to do about it? 
But the interesting thing about two-year-olds is they actually want to know what you're going to do about it. They're trying to figure out what is this game that we're playing, what are the rules, how many strikes do I get, and how do I win? Trying to figure out where is the line, and if we're honest, this isn't just two-year-olds, this is all of us. We're trying to figure out what is this game that we're playing, what are the rules, and how can I win? And today we're going to look at a story where Jesus is trying to explain the rules of forgiveness to the disciple Peter. And so before we get into the story itself, I just want to pray for us. Holy Spirit, you are so good. You are so active. You are so alive. And Jesus, we pray that today you would move us. God, you would move us past interest. You would move us past uh, even excitement and move us into action, God. Move us into a place of even discomfort so that we can live a life that's more like you. God, so that when people look at us, they can, they can see a glimpse of the love that you have for them through us. God, through our actions, through our words, through the gifts that we give. Holy Spirit, would you inspire us? Would you actually take us to a place, God, where... Uh, where we're no longer interested in, in just stories. We're interested in figuring out what it looks like to move through life like you did. God, living a life of sacrifice and forgiveness, even when it doesn't feel good and even when we don't want to. God, would we know that what you call us to is so much better. God, we love you so much. This time is all for you. We ask that you would give us ears to hear. We know you're gonna speak. God, would you give us a boldness to actually put it into action? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're in the second week of this new series. It's called Look Closer, and it's all about the parables of Jesus. Jesus was an incredible, an incredible storyteller. And uh, if you don't know that word parables literally means place beside. So it's place beside. And so what Jesus is really doing is he's taking a deep spiritual truth and he's placing it beside something common, something simple, something that will allow us to understand it in a way that's not confusing so that there's no stumbling blocks in between us and action. We can just move. And last week, Pastor Grant told us that every parable has layers of meaning. They're like onions. You just keep peeling it back. It looks like one story, but you can just get so many things out of it, which means we can't just read it once and move on with our lives. We have to continue to look closer. And he even gave you these um, magnifying glasses last week, and I need you to know this isn't just a tool for you. If you want to use it as a tool, that's great, but what this really is, is this is a tangible item that we are choosing to, as a church collectively hold this summer, as we say, we're not just going to listen and look closer on Sundays. We actually want to move through our world looking for that which God is trying to give us. We're trying to see more of what God wants to invite us into, whether that's love, whether that's extending forgiveness and grace. And so we want to encourage you. You can pick these up on your way out if you didn't get one. This isn't just a tool. This is for us to collectively say we are committed to looking closer to what God is doing. Pastor Grant also taught us that parables help us see and understand kingdom principles. Again, we place them next to something common so that we can understand them. And finally, it instructs Jesus followers. So those of us who are trying to figure out following Jesus, it's going to instruct us. And for uh, religious people, it actually confuses them. If you're just looking for what is the rule, parables will confuse you to no end. And Jesus loves confusing religious people who are more interested in rules than loving people and actually having a relationship with him. So today we're looking at a story in Matthew chapter 18 that's called the unmerciful servant. And we're going to start in verse 21 and take it a piece at a time. And so the beginning of the story goes like this. 
Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. And so immediately, Peter is looking to know how many times do I have to forgive? What are the rules of engagement with this game of forgiveness? He's trying to understand how do I do what I need to do in this situation? And a lot of times we, we give Peter a lot of flack for most of the answers that he gives, but I would argue that seven is actually a great answer. It's a generous answer because in the Jewish culture, it was common practice to forgive three times in a day. So if somebody hurts you, if they were mean to you, if they offended you, you were culturally obligated to forgive them three times, one, two, three, and on the fourth time they could ask for forgiveness and you could say no. And you could walk away holding a grudge and that's well within your rights. But Peter knew that Jesus didn't play by the rules. He knew that Jesus was the one who said, if somebody makes you walk a mile, we're actually gonna walk two miles. So what Jesus, or what Peter does is he takes that three and he doubles it because that's what Jesus does. And then he added one just for good measure. And he says, what about seven? I think I figured it out. The answer is seven. We're called to forgive people seven times. And Peter is probably sitting there waiting for Jesus to say, wow, Peter, you are remarkable. How did you know? That is exactly the answer. And that's what he's waiting for, but that never really comes because Jesus says, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. A lot of translations say 70 times seven, which I actually like a little bit bigger or better because it's, it's bigger. It's 490, not to impress you with my math skills, but it is 490, 70 times seven. I learned that one back in the day, but any translation that you look at, it's just filled with this number seven. It's seven times, it's 77 times or 70 times seven. And that number is important because that number actually signifies in the scriptures, it's a number that means completion. It's the number that means perfection. It's the number of wholeness. So Jesus is saying, I'm not just interested in you forgiving a certain amount of times, I'm interested in you forgiving completely and wholly and perfectly. Jesus isn't giving an actual answer here. He's not saying forgive 77 times and on the 78th time you can bring the hammer, you can bring the pain, man. That's not what he's doing. He's actually responding to the question with a non-answer. He doesn't actually want to engage the question on that level, and here's why. I think he takes issue with the question itself. Back when I was in college, there was a few classes, I don't know if you've ever had this, but the teacher on the first day would not only hand you a syllabus, they would hand you a piece of paper that had all of the grades listed out. So it was A, B, C, D, F, Y, E is in there, I don't know, A, B, C, D, and F, and then there would be bullet points of this is exactly what you need to do to get this grade. And so there was remarkable clarity, is, is what I said that I liked. But the reality is I really loved it because what that meant is I now had all the information that I needed to do the absolute bare minimum to get the grade that I wanted. I didn't have to do any guessing work. I didn't have to go above and beyond. I just needed to check these boxes. And all of a sudden I got an A or a B depending on what I needed that quarter. And so I loved it, not because I wanted to know clarity so that I could go above, I wanted the clarity so I could just get by and still get what I wanted. And I would argue that, that what's, that's what uh, Peter is really trying to do here. He wants to know what's the bare minimum? How many times do I have to forgive? And he's not asking that question so he can go above and beyond. He's asking that question so he can 
just get to that level. He wants to set a timer on his phone and say, yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's one. Say, yeah, that's two. Yep, that's three. You looked at me weird. That counts, you know. Now we're down to three more lives, and then I'm going to just say no, and it's well within my rights because that's what Jesus told me to do. That's what Peter's looking for, that kind of clarity. So rather than giving Peter a literal answer, Jesus tells a story. And this is how his story goes. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. And guys, right off the bat, the setup of this story is absurd. This amount of money is an impossible sum of money. I don't think that I've ever fully grasped it till I really started reading about it. The general belief is that one bag of gold was 20 years wages for a day laborer. So somebody would have to work 20 years every single day to get one bag of gold. And this servant owed 10,000 bags of gold. And if you're into math, what that means is that this servant's debt was 200,000 years of labor. And so this servant owed the king 200,000 years of working every single day. In some modern translations, people uh, take different wages to figure out where this lands. Some people say it's $2 billion. Some people say it's $4 billion. Some people say it's $7.4 billion. But either way, it's billions with a B, which is that number where our brains stop really realizing all that we know. It's insurmountable. It's huge. It's an amount of money that we will never be able to pay. And what Jesus is doing is he's making sure that we know immediately that this man is in an impossible situation. He is over his head. He should have never gone to Vegas and just kept on rolling and rolling. It's not a good look for him. He is in a bad, bad place. Verse 25 says, since he was not able to pay, obviously, the master ordered that he and his wife and children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. And at this, the servant fell on his knees before him. He said, please be patient with me and I will pay back everything. And I'd never seen this before. Of course, the fact that him and his wife and children were gonna be sold is, is barbaric and it's wild, but this is what this is what they did in those days. And so this wasn't a chilling or a surprising outcome for this servant with that amount of debt. But what is surprising, what comes next? But what I want us to see here is, I've never noticed this before, but the servant never actually asks for his debt to be forgiven. He doesn't say, hey, would it be possible? Is there any possible way that you could just cancel my debt? What he actually asks for is more time. He says, will you be patient with me? And then he says the most ridiculous line. He says, I will pay back everything. It's almost like he doesn't realize how crazy the debt is that he's in, as if an extra week is actually gonna change his situation. It's like he doesn't understand how far in this hole that he is. It would be like if I owed you $200 million, which I do not have for the record, and you come to collect, and I say, you know, I can't pay that right now, but what I need, I'll, I'll get it to you, just give me till Tuesday, and we'll figure this out. My people will talk to your people, and do you take check, you know? 
and you're thinking to yourself, this isn't about check or cash, you are never going to come up with that amount of money. This isn't gonna happen. Picking up an extra Uber shift is not going to get the job done. You've got bigger issues than time. Dude, you see the servant's logic is all wrong because he's talking about paying back the money, but what he really needs to be doing is begging for grace. What he really needs is the mercy of this king. And this is what I would argue that we look like sometimes when we're trying so hard to get into the good graces of God. We're trying so hard to be valuable for God. We say, God, if you just give me a little bit more time, I've just got to get in the word. I've got to get in my small group. I've got to get to church. I've just got to do a little bit of work and then I will be okay. Just give me some time and I'll put my life together. Then you can use me. And what we cease to understand in those moments where we're striving and trying is that we have an impossible debt that we could never pay. And without an impossible debt, there can't be an impossible good news. And we get to the good news in verse 27. Even though the servant is disillusioned into thinking that he can work his way out of the debt, the king still responds to the plea. Friends, this is good news. 27 says, the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Let him walk free. And if that's where the story ended, it would be a beautiful story, but unfortunately it's not. And this is where we really get to see the heart of humanity. It says, but when the servant went out, he immediately found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, which is not a lot. And he grabbed him and began to choke him and said, pay back what you owe me. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. It sounds familiar because this is the exact same logic that was used by him talking to the master. It's mirroring that same situation. Verse 30, but he refused. Instead, he went out and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay his debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. And the master called the servant in and he said, you wicked servant. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. And it ends by saying, this is how my heavenly father will treat you unless you forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. This is what will happen to you unless you forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart heart. And oftentimes people get very confused by the ending of the story. You're like, where's the love? Where's the grace? Where's this good king? How can we have this flipped switch? But if you look at it closely, if you really look closely, I think what you're going to see is that this is a story about oftentimes when we hold a grudge and when we withhold forgiveness, it's actually us who end up paying the price. It's actually us who find ourselves in some level of prison. So I've got a couple thoughts on the story. The first thought is this, the saddest part of this story isn't the fact that the servant ends up in chains, it's that he leaves this encounter with the king unchanged. The love, the grace, the forgiveness that was poured out on him does not affect him in the least. He still leaves that situation with the same mindset that he went into it with. 
I would say the most radical part of this story isn't the punishment, it's the grace, it's the forgiveness that gets poured out. It says the master took pity on him. And that word pity is so interesting because it can get translated in the Greek to felt in his guts. And so what this is saying is that for some reason that we don't know, the king was moved. He felt it in his guts for the servant. And that gut feeling actually translated into the king moving towards the servant and showing him mercy and showing him forgiveness and showing him empathy and showing him love on a level that he could never deserve or never pay back. And yet still the servant isn't changed by this experience. And it really opposes a question for us, those of us who have ever been in a place where we are sinking and God poured out his love for us. And the question really is, have we been changed or have we just received the gift and tried to squander it ourselves? And this is where parables are so helpful because they show us a story where you just see this radical debt forgiven and you're like, of course he should forgive. But the reality is the invitation for us is not just to see that the servant should forgive, but to see that we need to be people who forgive. This servant is still not free, even though he's been set free. That's my second thought. You can be completely forgiven and yet not completely free. You can be completely forgiven, but not completely free. What we see is that the king forgives this debt that's just so much more than we can even comprehend. And yet the servant's not free because he's still clinging to old debts. The first thing he comes out and does is choke one of his fellow servants and says, pay me the money. And if you want to know what freedom looks like, it's not that. In Galatians 5.1, it says, it is for freedom that Christ set us free. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. And so oftentimes we talk about what we've been saved from, but we don't talk about what we've been saved for. And it says it's for freedom that Christ set us free. So stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Don't allow yourself to be burdened. In other words, if you've been set free, which we have been set free, do not allow yourself to be weighed down by things that are going to hinder your freedom. Oftentimes we believe that we're free because we've been forgiven and yet we don't realize that we're still being weighed down by the things that we're choosing to carry. And I'll show you what I mean. Oftentimes you and I will, will start the day, I don't know about you, but we'll, we'll decide that, that we're just gonna start it with a, a little social media session. So we'll pull out our phones and we'll start scrolling, even though for the record, that's a terrible palate cleanser. That's not gonna do anything good for your blood pressure, but we do it nonetheless. And we're scrolling and we start seeing what different people are saying about different things. And inevitably, if we read long enough, we're gonna get offended. And then we're gonna see another comment and another post and we end up getting a little bit offended. We pick up something along the way. And then we see that that some people spent some time together the night before and we didn't get invited to it, so we feel forgotten and we, we feel offended. And then we get to work and we go in and our coworker doesn't actually look up at us and say hi the way that we want them to. And so obviously we assume that they hate us and we're offended by that, you know, because that makes sense. And we show up early for a meeting and uh, we're all ready to go. We're trying to stay positive, you know, but everyone else is late and we feel looked over, so we're offended by that. And then somebody has the audacity to look at you wrong, and so, I mean, that's not, that's not good. And then somebody says something 
bad about your favorite sports team. And so you don't talk about Russ that way. I'm serious. You don't talk about Russ that way. And then on the way home, you're in traffic, which I don't know about you, doesn't do anything good for my soul. And you get cut off by somebody and you swear you could just see a little smirk on their face when they did it. And you get home and you check Instagram again, you check Facebook. And much to your surprise, the world is still broken. People are still crazy and they're, they're writing things. And so you get offended. And we just pick up all these things along the way that we were never meant to carry. And we end up with a bag that's surprisingly heavy, friends. Take it from me. And I know that all those things that I talked about, those aren't, those aren't serious things. We're talking about Instagram. But how many of you know that if you're around people long enough, they will actually hurt you. They will give you a reason to actually wrestle with, what do I do with this weight? Am I going to let it go or am I going to put it on my back and carry it? with me. People are going to hurt you. People are going to lie to you. People are going to betray you. And every time that they do, it gives us a question. What do we do with this? And if we're not careful, we just end up tucking it away and putting it into a pack and putting it on our back. And so now we're in a situation where we've been set free. We had an impossible debt. It's been forgiven. And yet when we walk around, we're still weighed down, not by what Jesus put on us, but by, we, by what we willingly picked up ourselves. Anyone know what this feels like? To get to the end of the day and just be so offended. And even though Jesus has set you free, you don't feel free. You can't move free the way that you were created to because you're being weighed down by something that you're choosing to pick up. And every time that we carry around something, if we carry around bitterness, eventually it turns into resentment. And what St. Augustine said about resentment, and I love this if you haven't heard it, is resentment is swallowing poison and waiting until the other person dies. It's like swallowing poison and waiting for the other person to die. And it sounds crazy, but it's exactly what we do. We try to torture people in our minds, but it's actually us, not them, who get tortured. And friends, if you want to know what the freedom is that Jesus actually freed you for on the cross, I'm going to tell you right now, this isn't what it looks like carrying around a bunch of baggage. This is what the freedom that Jesus gave you looks like. It looks like making a decision to put it down. I've heard forgiveness talked about like this, and it was so helpful. Forgiveness is setting somebody free and realizing that it's you. We think of forgiveness as actually extending something to others, but a lot of times forgiveness is setting somebody free and realizing that that person is you. The reality is Jesus wants more for you. He wants lightness. He wants joy. He wants you to not only have freedom, but be able to enjoy freedom and be able to do it in such a way that you can live in a way that actually reflects the forgiveness and beauty and joy that God has given you. Jesus invites us to forgive, not just for those other people and not just for himself, but for us and our shoulders so that we don't just end up carrying around the things that are just going to weigh us down. We're called to forgive. We're also called to forgive 
quickly. Colossians 3 in the message says, dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you. Compassion, kindness, humility, quiet strength, discipline, be even-tempered, be quick to forgive an offense. So how do we forgive? We forgive quick. It says, forgive as quickly and completely as the master forgave you. So we're not just called to forgive, we're called to forgive quickly so that bitterness doesn't take a root in our soul. And I don't know how this works for you, but I'm somebody who, uh, whether I like it or not, I, I, I say I'll forgive, but a lot of times I just say, you know what, I just need a little bit of time. I just need some time. This has got to be on my timeline. I'll get there eventually, but first, I just need to think it over. I need to stew for the weekend. I want to make sure uh, this, is, this is like a real picture of, of my heart and how incredibly generous I am at moments. I want to make sure the other person just has such an exceptional opportunity to really consider how badly they messed up. I really want to make sure that they have time to really consider every single thing that they did wrong. And if they do that, and if they uh, are able to show that there's pain in their eyes, and I can hear sincerity in their hearts, then I will choose to extend forgiveness. You know, I get there eventually. I'll forgive, but first I want to see regret, and first I want to see repentance, and first I want to see change, and first I want to see progress, and first I want to see growth. And really, in my core, what I'm trying to do is really figure out, do they deserve to be forgiven by me? Are they showing me enough to know that I can forgive them and feel like this isn't cheap? And we're so busy thinking about whether or not they deserve it. Did they really regret it? Do they understand? Did they apologize the way that I wanted them to? And when we're just trying to figure out whether they deserved it, we're completely forgetting the fact that we never deserved the forgiveness that was poured out over our lives. And we want to make sure they deserve forgiveness, but we want to receive unmerited forgiveness. And friends, this story is a picture it places beside such a simple concept that says, if you've been forgiven, of course we forgive. If you have had love poured out on your life, of course we pour that love out on others. If you've received grace, then how could we not respond with grace? Freely we have received, so now freely we give. So what does that mean? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. Forgiveness is not saying that what happened was okay. This is important. A lot of people, uh, they, they get stuck here. But forgiveness doesn't mean minimizing what happens. It doesn't mean affirming or excusing what happened. It's not letting somebody else off the hook. It's letting go and realizing that it was actually you who was on the hook. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God forgave the inexcusable in you. How beautiful is that? So forgiveness is not saying that what happened was okay. It's also not pretending like it never happened. You don't need to get selective amnesia to forgive someone. Forgiveness is actually bigger than forgetting. And in its truest form, what forgiveness says is, I know what you said about me. I know what you did about, or I know what you did to me. I have not forgotten, but I'm still going to choose to move forward. I'm still going to choose peace. I'm still going to choose the joy that I've been promised. So forgiveness is not pretending it didn't happen. Forgiveness is also not the same thing as trust. Because trust has to be earned, but forgiveness is given. A lot of times people will say, I cannot forgive them. I can't even trust them. Here's a little cheat code for you. You don't need to trust them to forgive them. 
They don't have to earn your trust to be given your forgiveness. Forgiveness has less to do with them and more to do with you actually letting go of something that was never yours to carry. Forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. Reconciliation takes two people, and oftentimes the other person isn't interested in actually going through that process together. But that doesn't mean we need to get stuck. It actually means that we need to realize the power we have of forgiving. A lot of times we say, you know what, I don't want to forgive because it can't go back to the way that things were. You don't have to have them go back to the way that things were. You can establish boundaries and still forgive. You can forgive from a distance. You can forgive somebody and never see them again. Forgiving doesn't mean that nothing changes. It doesn't mean that there aren't consequences. It means that I am going to choose to let go of something that was never mine to carry because I'm sick of it being on my back and weighing me down. Forgiveness is choosing not to seek revenge even when you could. Forgiveness is making the decision to put judgment in the hands of God and moving on with your life. Does that mean that it's easy? Of course not. It is profoundly hard, but it's what we've been given and it's what we're invited to give. If you want to know what God's heart looks like, it looks like forgiveness. If you want to know more about who God is, start participating in forgiveness. Start giving away unmerited grace. Start saying, yes, you did this thing to me and you do not deserve my forgiveness, but I'm going to forgive you anyway. And the more you do that, the more you'll understand what God's done for you and you'll start to see more clearly. We also need to know, yes, we forgive quickly, but sometimes forgiveness is a process. It doesn't always happen at once. Sometimes you have to forgive someone over and over and over and over and over and over and over for something that they did one time. Because it's a process. Sometimes that process is letting go of bitterness incrementally. It's saying, I forgive you until God is able to actually do that work in you. And just because you're not where you wanna be and it's not going at a pace that you expected it to doesn't mean that you shouldn't continue to make that decision to move forward because we know that he who began a good work in me will can carry it on to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Amen? He will be glorified every step of the way if we choose to forgive. I think the genius of this story is that Peter asked, what do I have to do? And a lot of times that's our mentality with church. What do I have to do? Just tell me how many pages to read. Just tell me how many chapters before I show up on Wednesday. What do I have to do to be in right standing with God? But in response to this question about what we have to do, Jesus tells a story about what's already been done for us. He says, a man owed 10,000 bags of gold, 200,000 years of wages, and he was forgiven. So when you're asking a question about how little can I do, just remember how much has been done for you. If you ever find yourself, God, what do I have to do to get by? Remember that God did not stop at getting by when it came to you. Jesus is saying, can we just start with remembering what's already been done? Because I don't know about you, but when Jesus found me, I was over my head. I was broken and I was sinking and there was nothing that I can do. And yet the craziest thing about it was I still had this feeling that if I worked hard enough that maybe I could get right standing with God. I still was convinced that if I just worked harder and I did a little bit more, God, can you just give me a little bit more time? But the reality is I didn't need more time. I needed a miracle. I needed a merciful God. And God being rich in mercy 
This is my miracle from Ephesians. Because of the great love with which he loved me, made me alive together with Christ, and he lifted me up into the heavenly places. And it was nothing that I did. It was everything that he did. It wasn't because I earned it. It wasn't because I deserved it. It wasn't because I was good. It was because God is abundantly above anything that we could ever ask or imagine. And he is a good father. It's because God felt it in his guts for you. He was moved by you. Why? I can't say that I know. I just know that it's called love. He felt in his guts for you when you were faced with a situation where there was a gap you could never cross on your own. There was a hole you could never dig yourself out of. And he forgave. And he gave us this story to place beside our experience so that we could see, of course, we're called to forgive. And then he shows us what it looks like to carry so that it's not just about forgiving others, it's about not picking up that which is going to shackle us. So we can ask Jesus all that we want, how many times we need to be forgiving others, but maybe the more helpful thing is to flip the script and ask an honest question to each and every person here. Aren't you glad God didn't stop at seven when he was forgiving you? Anybody know just me? Aren't you glad that God didn't give you what you deserved? He gave you what you didn't deserve, and he called it grace. He called it love. He called it his son on the cross. Friends, you have been forgiven to forgive. You've been invited by the king of mercy to let go of old debts, to let go of old offenses, to let go of bitterness and resentment, not just because he needs it, not just because they need it, because we do. Because when Jesus promised us freedom, this is not what he was talking about. This is what he was talking about. Putting it down. Freely we have received Now freely we will give. I'd love to pray for you. Holy Spirit, you are so good to us. So oftentimes we read these stories and we miss that your heart is for us. God, when you invite us into something like forgiveness, we put it on like an obligation, even though it's an opportunity to put something down that's weighing us up that's inhibiting our ability to live the free life that you've given us. And God, your heart for us is to live free, to live joyfully, God. And that doesn't mean that life is easy. It is not, and we know that, but there's still power through your spirit to let go of offenses, to not be offended people, God, but to be people through which your forgiveness flows. We know that every bit of forgiveness, every ounce, every piece that we give, is a response to the forgiveness that's been given us. We are those who are so indebted and who have been forgiven. So God, would you inspire us and move us past action? Would you put a person in our minds right now? Would you show us what that first step looks like so that we would be a people known not just for receiving grace, but for giving grace. Not just perceiving love, but giving love. That's our prayer. Lord, do a work in us. We thank you. You are so good to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.